Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on our uh, message this morning as he works through his word to bring us closer to Christ. Father, we sang just a few moments ago, Speak, O Lord. We ask that you would bring your word to us this morning. We know that in many ways uh, we have cares of this world that are weighing heavy on our hearts. We know, Lord, that there are questions that we have in our minds about who you are and your working in society. But, Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes as we sang as well, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, that we would see things that we've never seen before that we would leave from this place with with greater courage to stand for truth, to stand with you uh, in a world that is so off course, that has lost true north, that has no direction, and is really upside down. Give us, Lord, the grace to hear your word, and we'll give you thanks through it and in it for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Our scripture reading this, this morning is from Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 21. This chapter is uh, an indication of Daniel's not only training as a young person back in Israel, but it's an indication of what God uh, was doing and is doing uh, through the nation. So I'd like to read from Daniel chapter 10, verses uh, 10 through 21. Daniel writes, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, princes, I'm sorry, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. But now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish Because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You are highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, 
the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me in this. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Amen and amen. I remember the first time I was in elementary school looking through a microscope. We had gone out in the creek behind the school and got a little bit of water and a beaker and we came in and put a little drop on that slide and then slid it under a microscope. And I remember for the first time seeing things with my eye that I couldn't see. I should say seeing with that microscope that I couldn't see with my eye. Friends, that happens in the real world. There are things so small that people are able to see with microscopes and all kinds of technology today. But just as that's true in the physical realm, it's also true in the spiritual realm. There are things that you and I cannot see. There are things that are going on that we are unaware of. And Daniel chapter 10 tells us that one of those things is this aspect of angels and demons. This is kind of interesting because those of us who are of the Reformed tradition, we really don't talk about this. I mean, as I look back at 35 years of ministry, I wonder to myself, you know, how often have I spoken about angels and demons and, and that kind of thing? And so I actually dug into the whole topic a couple of years ago. And our text this morning is uh, kind of the result of all of that research. Because in the book of Daniel, there are things going on behind the scenes and when you look at Elisha, when uh, he's sitting there with his servant, and they, his servant's like freaking out, God, that we're, we're, we're surrounded, we're all going to die. And Elisha says, Lord, would you give to my servant the ability to see the army of God on top of the mountain? And you know that God delivered them that day. Friends, this whole subject of angels and demons is not an obsession, It's a realization that God has created spiritual beings that minister to you and to me. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will be heirs of salvation. They were created on day one. If you look at, if you compare Job with Genesis 1, they were undoubtedly created at the very beginning of the world. They sang together when God created the, uh, the heavens and the earth. It's interesting because even Jesus says that children, he says their angels in heaven keep watch over them. Yesterday I was getting my hair cut and my, uh, the gal that cut my hair was telling me a story that she was driving from Detroit up to, uh, uh, I forget the name of that, Castle Village or something around here. Thank you, Castle Farms. She's going to have her wedding there on April 12th, and she said, we just drove up, and as we were pulling in the drive uh, to our friend's house, my car starts to overheat. And she said, I guess our guardian angel, or my guardian angel, was just asleep. And we said, what do you mean asleep? He, you got where you were supposed to go. And she said, well, kind of. We had to borrow a car and rent a car and get to get to Castle Farms, etc. And I just thought to myself, well... I don't know that they sleep, but you did get there safely. But you know, it's interesting because 
typically when we think of angels, we don't think of them in any concrete way because, as you know, the Bible is not a textbook on angels. It doesn't say, okay, in uh, Hezekiah chapter 1, we're going to tell you everything about angels. It, it doesn't have one section. We have to do much the same in terms of Bible interpretation that we do on the doctrine of God. We take every statement from Scripture and we don't just build on one passage, but we take all these passages together. It's called inductive Bible study. We look at all of the evidence before we come up with a conclusion. It's much the same as a law enforcement would do or a good attorney would do as they're trying to find out what actually happened. They would interview people. They would go back to the scene. They would take samples, crime scene samples, everything that goes on before they come up with a conclusion. That's, that's the way life's supposed to work. Uh, it doesn't always happen that way in the news. People are convicted before they even have a trial. But the point that I'm sharing here is that when we take the subject of angels, this subject is really all over the scriptures. And I would just encourage all of you, if you have opportunity, uh, some of us have the old Strong's Concordance or Young's Concordance, you know, that old book that was like this thick and it had numbers on uh, in. Anyway, it, they, they have it online. It's a lot quicker nowadays. But you can look up angels. You can look up demons. You can look up um, messengers, messengers of God. Uh, you can just Satan, uh, Michael, uh, Beelzebub. I mean, you can go through all of these and just look at how many times those words occur throughout Genesis to Revelation. It's, it'll blow your mind. But we're in Daniel chapter 10. And uh, there are a couple angels that are mentioned here. There are only five angels that are mentioned by name in the Bible. Two of them in our, are in our text. Michael, Daniel, you have Satan, you have Apollon, and you have Beelzebub. You have those five angels. Three of them are demons. They, they have fallen. Satan was able to get a third of the angelic creation that God had made to rebel against God. A third of them. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of numbers. I can't give you a billion point three. I, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you that there is a huge number that rebelled against God. And three of them are named as those who rebelled. And it's interesting because Gabriel is mentioned in our text, and Gabriel is really the messenger of God. He takes God's message to different people. He did that with Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Uh, he greeted Mary. He greets Daniel and brings a message from the Lord uh, in, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10. And of course, Michael the archangel is listed here as well uh, in this uh, book. So what I want to share with you this morning is that God has, in the life of Daniel, placed him in a very unique situation. Now, many of you remember that when I say the word Daniel, Probably the next phrase is, and the lion's den. That's probably what most of us think when we hear the word Daniel. But as you know, Daniel was a teenager, a young teenager, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, besieged the city, and took young men, and I, I don't know if he took any young women, but he took young men hostage from Jerusalem, 700 uh, miles uh, east over to Babylon, these hostages are removed from home. Daniel was one of them. When Daniel writes this at the end of his book, he's probably in his 70s. Daniel, from a teenager all the way to the 70s, was walking with the Lord. 
he was honoring the Lord. In fact, twice in our text, it says, O Daniel, greatly loved. Remember what uh, Gabriel said to Mary. You are highly esteemed. There are people that God is favoring and esteeming. And we find out that it's Daniel, and we find out that it was Mary. And, and as we hear Gabriel's message, he's telling Daniel that there's a unique setting that he has before God that as a teenager, when Daniel stood against the dictates of, uh, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar at that point, and now as he stands uh, in the time of Cyrus, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. So from a teenager to his 70s, he's been walking with the Lord. God has blessed him. He's been in places of authority and leadership. He's gone through several uh, kings. You have Nebuchadnezzar, you have Darius, you have uh, Cyrus, um, there are Belteshazzar, there, there are many, you know, it's like Daniel was the guy. <laughs> if, if, if you were a king and somebody interpreted a dream for you and it came true, and then you throw his buddies in the fiery furnace and they live, and then you throw him in the, the lion's den because he's not going to follow your edict and the lions don't destroy him, each one of those stages with different kings, it's like, man, this guy's unique. Everybody else would be shredded. So I need him on my staff. So it's funny that Daniel, all along his life, it didn't matter with the, ch- I mean, you know, you, you get, uh, you get uh, where do we start? With what president? You know, you start with um, Obama, he picks his own staff, and then Trump comes in, he picks his own staff, and then... You know, Biden comes in. He pick, why? Because they need people they can trust. At least they think they can trust. And so they, they pick these people, but they rarely do the people go, the closest advisors don't stick with the new administration. For Daniel, it did. They did. They wanted him. So it's interesting because as we look at the scriptures, folks, God's word talks about three institutions that he has made. God created the family with Adam and Eve. He created government in Genesis 9 and the church when Jesus said, I will build my church. All three are God-ordained institutions. I smile every time I think about the book of Daniel because Daniel was in a political environment. He lived his whole life in a political environment and he served the Lord in that environment extremely well. But you will find it hard if you were to look through the scriptures and say, is there a book that's not written to a king or about a king or by a king or the history of the kings? Whether it's Paul in the, you know, in the book of Acts, where is he headed? He's headed to see Caesar. In each case along the way, he keeps appealing. So what I'm sharing with you is that in these three ordained institutions, the scriptures have a ton of material to talk about government. They also talk about the home. We all know that. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Husbands, love your wives. We know those verses. We know that we are called to become conformed to the image of Christ. And so the, a church will have, and I'm sure you guys have driven down to the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology in Grand Rapids. Probably somebody here has gone to one of those, or R.C. Sproul, or... Um, you know, you probably have attended a conference on spiritual gifts or justification or sanctification. 
probably attended a conference that a church had on marriage and family. I mean, our church put on those kind of conferences when I was the pastor. But I've never been to a church that had a conference on government. Our church did one time back in 2016. But it's so rare. But I'm wondering, why why would we neglect one-third of God's ordained institutions when he addresses it very clearly? So here we are in Daniel chapter 10. I have three questions that I'd like to uh, ask this morning. Who is this man that Daniel's communicating with? The second question is, what detained him, this man, and how is this applicable to today? So in verses uh, uh, 10 through uh, 21, we read about this man that tells Daniel, don't be afraid. This man gives Daniel strength. Daniel's trembling. He's nervous. He can't even speak, hardly breathe. And the question is, who is this man? Well, if you look in chapter 10, uh, verses 4, it says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank, I lifted up my eyes, and behold, and look, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, uh, of Euphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words sounded like a multitude. It was deep. It was loud. When we read those words, upon initial reading, it, it almost sounds like Revelation chapter 1, where John has this encounter with the risen Christ. Um, you know, the like, person looks like a man. Jesus came in the appearance of a man. He had flesh and blood like you and I do. His eyes are flaming torches. Eyes are flames of fire. It sounds very similar to Revelation 1. But I would suggest to you that this is not Jesus. This is not a pre-incarnate Christ. This is not a Christophany. I'm convinced that this is an angel, and I'm going to give you some reasons why. When the phrase in our text says, it looked like a man, that is typical for angelic description. Angels do not have human bodies, but they are able to appear like a human being. My case in point is Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels appeared to Lot and said, get out of town. Those angels, handsome young men. Looked like a man does not indicate that it was Jesus or a pre-incarnate Christ, but it's terminology used frequently with Abraham, with the angels at Jesus' tomb, Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. This greeting that we find in verse 11 of chapter 10 is really the same greeting that we find in chapter 9, verse 21, under a different king. And it's Gabriel. Gabriel, the messenger of God. Verse 11, the text says, stand up. The angel, or this person, let's, rather than give you the conclusion, I'll give you a conclusion. It's not Jesus, it's, it's an angel. I already said that. But the, the person says, stand up. That's ter- angelic terminology. To, though this person is some supernatural being that God has created, when in the presence of a human being, the supernatural being an angelic being blows away a human being. And the human being's like, I'm falling on my face. And the, the angel says, get up. I'm not God. Get up. I'm just his messenger. When you look at like Isaiah 6, when, angel, when Isaiah was in the presence of God, he fell on his face. He said, woe is me. You see, when you're in the presence of God and you fall on your face, 
you stay, you stay on your face because God is holy. We are unholy. He's righteous. We are unrighteous. He is totally different than we are. And so the angel says to Daniel, stand up. I'm a created being as well. Verses 12 and 13, I read this already, that the angel, this messenger from God, is detained by the, what we read in the text, the prince of Persia. We have a serious theological problem if whatever the prince of Persia is at this point can detain Jesus, the eternal son of God who is all-powerful. That's a theological problem. So I don't see this person at all being a uh, a Christophany. It's, It's clearly an angel because another angel has to come help him. So that's the identification of this individual. It's, it's Gabriel, same terminology as chapter 9, bringing a message from God. But we have to ask, what detained Gabriel? Daniel tells us in the text that he was fasting for 21 days. That's interesting. It's not interesting that he fasted for 21 days, but he was fasting because he had prayed to the Lord. Lord, uh, this comes out in chapter 9. I'm trying to understand, Lord. I, I remember reading in the book of Jeremiah that we would be in captivity for 70 years. Remember I said Daniel was abducted when he was a teenager. He's probably in his 70th year, 70, 75, whatever it is. So he's thinking in his mind, we may be going home soon. God's word is true. God told Jeremiah, 70 years. It's probably going to happen in my lifetime. Daniel's starting to get excited. Now we have to ask, how did Daniel know that? Think with me for just a moment. Think of the impact that parents have on their children when they're reading them the word of God. Remember, Daniel's 700 miles to the east. He's in Nebuchadnezzar's town. Isaiah's scrolls are over here in Israel. Jeremiah's scrolls are in Israel. Daniel would have had to have remembered that as a young person when he was sitting in the temple and the priest was explaining the word of God, saying that, Israel, unless you repent, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah told you that, and you'd never forget that. And so Daniel's sitting there as a teenager. Man, I hope my parents and everybody, Lord, I'm repenting. I'm following you. As a teenager, I'm with you, Lord. I'm I'm not going to go off the rails like, like, you know, my aunts and uncles and people in the king. And we're going to, I'm going to follow you if it means my death. Now he's in his 70s, and he's thinking to himself, I may get to go home. I don't know about you folks, but that tells me the power of the Word of God in our children's life and in our grandchildren's lives. As I look at this congregation, I see young people here, and I see grandparents here, and I would just encourage you to hide that Word in their heart. It stuck with Daniel. It stuck with him, and he did not turn away from it because he realized that what God said was true, what God said would come to pass. He had seen it with his eyes. He had heard it with his ears, and he lived it in his life. But he was praying 
that the Persian kingdom would be favorable and send Israel and him back to the promised land. Now it's interesting as well when we look at uh, this period of time, this three weeks, when Gabriel comes to Daniel, in our text in chapter 10, he says these words, from the moment you prayed, your prayer was heard. Think with me. From the moment you prayed, the God of heaven and earth heard your prayers. That is amazing in itself. And what does God do? He says, Gabriel, come here. Go tell Daniel. He's down there in Babylon. You know where he is. Go tell Daniel that his prayer has been heard and that I'm going to answer that and that there's, there's going to be 69 sevens and the 70, 60, 70 of seven, etc. So I want you to go tell him that. Daniel prays, goes up to the Lord, the Lord answers, the Lord dispatches Gabriel to go give the answer to Daniel. This is all going on right now. And Daniel now is fasting for three weeks, 21 days, and he doesn't have an answer. Picture this in your head. This, is, this isn't my interpretation. I'm just re-reiterating what the scriptures state. That's why we speak, O oh Lord. You know, Lord, tell us what's going on in this passage. And so it's interesting because Daniel's praying on earth for three weeks. He's fasting. Lord, I haven't had the answer to my prayer. All the time while God immediately dispatches Gabriel to go tell Daniel, Daniel's, uh, Gabriel the angel is intercepted by a, a demon and that demon is wrestling with him so that he can't take that message and that answer to Daniel. So he's wrestling. There's this war going on in the, in the heavenly realm that we can't see any more than we can see on the, the physical realm with, without a microscope. Without God's spiritual scope, we miss out on this. And what we have taking place is that Michael the archangel has to come bail out Gabriel. Now, for those of us who believe that God is sovereign, he's in control of everything, why would God let some demon intercept his message to Daniel? Daniel's probably wondering, Lord, why, why haven't I heard the answer to my prayer? Well, I can think of several reasons why that would happen. One is, God wants Daniel and you and me to know that there are things going on behind the scenes that we don't see. Ultimately, the biggest thing is that God wins. Michael, the archangel, shows up, helps Gabriel get free to take the message to Daniel in chapter 10, which is what we have before us. Friends, the word resist, it says, when, when the angel said, I was resisted by the prince of Persia, this is talking about kingdoms in conflict. It's talking about something going on in the spiritual realm, something that you and I can't see. It's a, it's a war between good angels that are following God. Two-thirds of them followed the Lord. One-third rebelled and became demons following Satan. This is a war in our text, friends, over nations. Notice in the text it says, The prince of Persia detained me. Daniel starts out this chapter in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. There's a difference between the prince of Persia and the king of Persia. Every commentator I read on this tells us that the king is the king, Cyrus, the guy sitting on the throne in Persia. The prince of Persia is a demonic, fallen 
messenger from Satan. You see, the angel sent from God was to give Daniel an answer. The angel sent from God did not fight with Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's going to end up sending Israel back under Nehemiah and Esther. But we read in the text, as I said, there's this distinction between the king, the prince of Persia and the king of Persia, and there's a distinction between the prince of Greece and the king of Greece, and there's a distinction between the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, even in our text. It's interesting, friends, because the Hebrew word for prince used in our text, I'm sure you all have heard the word Septuagint. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. You have the Hebrew Old Testament written by Moses and, Eli, uh, and, and Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's all Hebrew except a few passages in Daniel that are Aramaic. But that, those 27 Hebrew books were translated into Greek about 200 years before Christ, and that became known as the Septuagint. The same word that's used of prince in this text is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. So Paul is understanding what's going on in the book of Daniel. He's understanding the spiritual warfare when he talks about Satan being the prince of the power of the air. When he talks about principalities and powers and dominions and thrones, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, that Jesus has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Friends, we have a picture in Daniel 10 of this war that's going on in the heavenly realms that you and I can't even grasp in our minds. I, I can't. But it tells us that it took place. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we talked about guardian angels. They, Jesus talks about their angels are keep watch over the little ones, and uh, angels are ministering spirits sent forth in Hebrews 1.14 to minister to those of us who have been heirs of salvation. Our text tells us that there are guardian angels over nations. That's interesting. There are some nations that are so evil, folks, that the demonic forces are so powerful that we can't even grasp what is going on. We hear about it in the news because there's worldwide news 24-7, but we can't even grasp the evil that's going on behind the scenes. The language tells us that this three-week fight that took place that detained Gabriel, though he was dispatched immediately when Daniel's prayer went to the Lord, this three-week fight that took place behind the scenes, behind the curtain of time and space. We're told that this took place because there are kingdoms in conflict. That's why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. That's why he's called the God of this age. That's why he goes to Jesus with this temptation and he says, Jesus takes him up on the highest point and he says, look at all the kingdoms of this world. I will give those to you if you bow down to me. So our third question this morning is, how applicable is this to today? Friends, it's obvious there's war in the heavenly realms. Daniel points that out in chapter 10. Paul confirms that in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, you and I, Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. That's what we wrestle with. We're not wrestling against our neighbor. Our issue isn't 
you know, I, I tell people, I told people for the last year and a half, the issue isn't Democrats. It's much more deeper and spiritual than that. It's evil at its core and Satan at its foundation. So the question that comes to my mind, which I think is a legitimate question, is are there angels over nations? We know that there are angels over human beings. There are guardian angels that Jesus talks about and Hebrews does. But are there still angels and demons over fighting over nations? Friends, as I said, the uh, story uh, tells us that uh, in, in, Isaiah, or in Daniel, we read in the last phrase of Daniel chapter 10, Michael is the prince over Israel. Gabriel is God's messenger. Michael, the prince over Israel, is fighting against the prince of Persia, He's going to be fighting over the prince of Greece, who Gabriel says is going to come. And so there's this, there's this ongoing battle that's taking place. And I can only say on the one hand, in Daniel and in the Old Testament, we know that Michael was there to protect Israel. And the reason why Israel, the most insignificant nation on the planet, this little speck of dust in the Middle East when you have Babylon and you have all these other nations that are huge by comparison, the reason why Israel was given the most powerful angel to protect it, the archangel, is because Jesus was going to be born from Israel. Remember, you look at the Old Testament, it's a history of trying to exterminate the nation. It's crazy because you have, um, you have the time of Esther. I, I, I could tell you the whole story. I mean, you folks know the story. I could tell you that, you know, nations come against Israel to try to annihilate them. They unite together to fight against Israel, and, and God protects them. And, and Well, why? Well, because if Israel as a nation ceased to exist, Jesus would never be born from the tribe of Judah. Makes sense, right? So the point is, is that the angels, Michael, guarding uh, Israel, was so significant that it had to happen so that the Messiah could come from Bethlehem. There had to be an Israel. It's interesting because when we look at the kingdoms in conflict today, it's much bigger than one nation. It's much bigger than just Israel. In fact, I'm convinced that when we read Paul's letters, he says that you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so the battle that's taking place on planet earth today is not over Israel per se, but it's with the church. That's why Paul writes, we as the church do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, what that means, folks, is that there's no government on this earth that can really effectively deal with evil. It's only us as the church. We're the only ones that as we take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as we take this to, uh, to D.C. and Lansing, as we take it to our city, uh, county seat, as we take it to our cities, 
we're the only ones that can say, thus saith the Lord. We have the truth. And so it's interesting because when we see these battles that are taking place in the Old Testament and we compare that with what's going on now, in the old days, prior to Christ, it was about extinguishing Israel. Now, it's by extinguishing and silencing the church. But the Lord had a big plan. Because when we read in Revelation that people from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue would come to Christ, Jesus has strategically placed Christians not in Israel alone, not in America alone, but in every nation on the earth because those Christians have the responsibility to fight that evil, to speak up against the evil that is going against everything that God has said is good. Let me just wrap this up really quick with just a few verses. And, and again, this is you can find these verses on your own, and if you go back and you do the research, um, you'll be really fired up. But I just want to read a couple passages from the New Testament that demonstrate that angels and demons are really active today. It's not like they've gone away and they, they're now taking a siesta. They are actively engaged in what's going on to tempt us to lead nations astray. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells that parable. You remember the sower goes out and he sows seed and it says a bird comes and snatches that seed away. And the disciples are like, what is this, Lord? And everybody else who's standing around says, okay, it was a story about a bird. We understand birds eat seeds. And, and Jesus says, let me give you the interpretation of it. That bird is Satan. As the seed is sown out, Satan comes to take as much as he can. And Jesus tells us that. He's, he's busy. That's what he's doing now. He's trying to take the word that's been planted in your heart or your children's hearts or your grandchildren's hearts. He's trying to take that away. He's not inactive. We read in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and then the third day be raised on the third day. Peter says, Lord, far be it from you. That'll never happen. I'm with you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Remember when Jesus is telling the disciples in the upper room, that one is going to dip his hand in the bowl and betray. And Jesus tells Peter, you're going you're to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Just because we name the name of Christ, folks, that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't bother us anymore, that he doesn't tempt us, that he doesn't think in his mind, hey, I can get so-and-so. I can get them to walk away from Christ. I can get them to do something different. Just because we worship in a church together in a free land doesn't mean Satan is not active trying to get us and our children to walk away from him. Acts chapter 5, Peter goes to Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied about how much they gave to the church. And he asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? 1 Corinthians 5, there's that man who's living in horrendous immorality. 
Paul says, excommunicate him, hand him over to Satan, that perchance his soul will be spared in the day of judgment. 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, I wanted to come to you, the church at Thessalonica. I wanted to come to you again, but Satan hindered us. Paul tells us in uh, 2 Timothy that false teachers in the church are those who teach things that are taught by demons. Now, it's not some ugly face, some critter, creature, red suit, pitchfork. You know, it's not that this person shows up and, you know, it's oh, it's a demon, we can tell. But false teachers are taking false, that's an oxymoron, false truth. (laughs) That's an oxymoron. They're taking false ideology. Because it's not true, but they're taking that and they're teaching the congregations to deny the Lord. And Paul writes that that's satanic, that's demonic. I didn't write that, that's what he says. And so he writes to the church at Corinth that I fear for you, lest just as Satan uh, tempted Eve and drew drew her away from the the pure word of God, I'm, I'm fearing that Satan may try to do that in your church as well. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna that they are a synagogue of Satan. Friends, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, I'm sure those of you who have been around Christianity a long time know that that gates of hell will not prevail against it sees the church as an ongoing attack on the evil of Satan. You know, in the olden days when, when a army would come against a city they had their their gate and the army would keep pushing her they'd get the big logs on shoulders and they'd try to knock this gate down and what you would have is the army would overtake that city the scriptures tell us that the church is the only institution god has ordained that can take down the kingdom of darkness The gates of hell, when we beat against them with the truth of God's word, those gates of hell cannot stand. They they won't even be able to keep us out. And yet, as Christians, how often have we sat silent in the pew and how silent in society? We haven't done anything. Friends, I love Paul's terminology where he talks about the church is the pillar and foundation for truth. When he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, there was a temple to Diana. And in the first century, that temple sat up on the hill. And that temple had pillars all around supporting the roof. Each one of those pillars was donated by a king of the known world. And each one of those pillars represented multicultural religion. It represented animism. It represented uh, worship of uh, ancestors. It represented everything imaginable. And when people came to Ephesus and they saw this beautiful temple that was so ornate, they'd stand back and say, man, everybody's accepted here. This is just awesome. We've got the warm fuzzies and everybody's religion is equally valid. And Paul says to the church at Ephesus, probably just maybe under 50 people, he says, when you walk in the streets of Ephesus and you look up, And you see that temple and you think in your minds, what impact are we going to have in society? We're meeting in Joe's home. We're meeting in Susie's home. We're we're, we're really, we don't have a voice. They have the building. They have the beauty. They have the momentum. What good will we do in society? And Paul says they don't have the truth. It's the church that is the pillar 
picking up the imagery of that temple. The church is the pillar of truth. Friends, we are not part of a dying organization. We are part of a God-ordained organization that is the only organization that has the authority and the power to change lives. Daniel shows us one thing, that humans and angels are involved in the same spiritual conflict. Daniel was through his prayer. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that you and I are involved in that same spiritual conflict. Abraham Kuyper. Anybody know who he is? see a couple smiles here. Dutch, Reformed theologian from the Netherlands. He says, If at once the curtain of time were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsing, sweeping everything within its range that the fierce battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison to be a mere game. Not here, but up there is where the real conflict is waged. And friends, you and I have the ability by taking truth, by praying, the sword of the Spirit and prayer, the two things that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, by speaking up and speaking out, we have the authority and the power to change through the Word of God, the culture in which we live, our families in which we live. My friend, Satan knows that Judgment Day is coming. Remember the story of the pigs in, Levitic, uh, in Luke? Jesus cast the demon out of this demon, out of this guy that's running around cutting himself. They go into the pigs. But before they do, when they recognize Jesus, they came face to face with Jesus Christ. They said, O Son of the Most High God, have you come here to torment us before our time? They knew judgment day was coming. They knew and they know they will lose. But they're not sitting on the sidelines. They are there to try to take every one of us. Now we know, I I don't have time to develop this in terms of God's election. I don't have time to develop that right now. But I can tell you, they are unceasing in trying to take everybody else with them. And it's only the word of God that will change hearts and minds families, young people that will make them Daniels when they're 70 because they've made decisions all along their life to stand with the Lord when they're faced with decisions, which way do I go? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that as we read in Colossians chapter 2 that our Lord Jesus when he died on the cross, not only paid for our sins, but he rendered Satan's judgment certain. And the picture that Paul gives us is of, is of the victorious king riding through the city with the kings that he has conquered in chains, in humility, behind him. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that we are on a winning team because you are the ultimate victor. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to not only pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but that you would enable us as your people to be light 
in a dark world, salt in a world that needs preserving. And we pray that, Lord, not for our glory, but we pray that because we know that you are able. And like with Sodom and Gomorrah, when Abraham was debating as to, Lord, will you still torch the city? And you said, if there are ten righteous, you would spare it. And Lord, we beg that you would do that again so that others will hear of that good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that he wants to bring us into his kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness. And we know that his blood covers our sins. We know that his authority and power has been given to him so that he has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. And to this end, we expectantly look and pray that you will work mighty things in our midst for the glory of Jesus, who alone is worthy. Amen and amen.